This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, this is Mind Your Business on Business Radio. Here's your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm co-founder of a community for business owners called 21 Hats that's coming soon. You can listen here for updates or also check our daily newsletter for entrepreneurs, The Morning Report, which you can find at getthemorningreport.com. Thanks for joining us today. As usual, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. This show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Here with me today to address those questions is Michael Dorff, founder of City Winery, a growing chain of restaurants that feature live music and wine. He's also the author of a book that's just out called Indulge Your Senses, Scaling Intimacy in a Digital World. Michael has had a long career as an entrepreneur with uh, some ups and downs, and we're going to talk about both. We're also happy to uh, to take your questions again, uh, either about Michael's business or about yours. You can call us at 844-942-7866. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> it's another day of, of life, I guess, as a uh, entrepreneur trying to grow some businesses and giving contractors a lot of money. <laughs> Are you having a tough day? It is. It it isn't the greatest of days. I was handed a few bills that were quite shocking. So, you know, I guess it's another day, but they, they were big ones. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but in a way, it's perfect because with this show, what we try to do is to kind of show that the experience of being an entrepreneur is not all the uh, the success that you sometimes read about in, in publications, that there's an awful lot of hard work and it's often, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's a struggle. And I guess you're confirming that for us. I, I, I have a million examples. I don't know how long the show is. It's one hour. <laughs> we'll get to I a could, few of them. <laughs> I could talk much longer than that for, you know, just the, the, you know, various examples of the tenacity needed in order to just persevere and try and get through, um, you know, to the next level with, with business. Well, before you do that, uh, let, let's tell people a little bit about City Winery. Uh, I've had the pleasure of spending several evenings in your uh, your now closed uh, New York City location. Um, it, it's, you know, I, I love the place. It was a great place. I can't wait to see your, your new one when it opens. Um, I also can't wait to see your, your new location in Philadelphia. But tell me, what, what, what atmosphere were you going for? What, what were you trying to create when you started City Winery? Well, um, City Winery was a was a real outgrowth of of the business I had done before on some level called the Knitting Factory, which was a, a more classic rock and roll standing nightclub. And I think I was building something a little bit more for where uh, my head was at. So it was very selfish in certain needs. You know, I wanted to sit for a concert and not. Stand. I wanted to drink wine out of a real glass, not a paper cup. So <laughs> I, I, I got you know, a deal with Riedel, um, you know, glassware, really the kind of the best crystal out there. I wanted a full list of wine. I actually wanted to bring authenticity to the space, so I knew where my product was coming from. So we actually created a, a true urban winery, um, and then I wanted, most importantly, intimacy. I wanted a big enough room that we could scale and get fairly large name artists and talent or put on big private parties, but at the same time, small enough so that an artist can look in the, <clears throat> in the whites of the eyes of, of, of their audience members or you as an audience, you know, a fan can really look in the eyes of, of, of the, of, of your you know, favorite musician on stage. And so there's something about the 300 
seat capacity that was that magic um, number. Um, and so I just I wanted that space. So it was very much about where my head was at, you know, um, personally. But that was something that was obviously has been resonating with a lot of people as a really optimal size room. Um, but look, when I built City Winery as well, I, I also had to, to, to very much consider, you know, all the competitive forces of the businesses around, too. So what 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 were the big 900 pound gorillas in the concert world, which are Live Nation and AEG? What kind of spaces were they building and growing and expanding? Because I, I, I don't want to, you know, compete against, you know, these giant, you know, monopolies or duopolies. Um, and then at the same time, it had to be big enough to scale. So, you know, there was a lot of factors that went into, you know, uh, the creation of City Winery and, and the type of, of of room it was. Were you aiming for a particular audience? Were you, were you aiming for baby boomers, for example, who might be equally interested in that uh, wine in a glass? Um, I think, you know, I, I like to talk about psychographics over demographics. Um, you know, yes, uh more baby boomers and folks that have affluence, if you will, financially, you know, are, are interested in a more luxurious um, sort of concert setting. But at the same time, you know, when, when you think about it from a psychographic standpoint, you know, I, I really also wanted younger people who were looking for that going out experience that was going to be just feeling more higher end, a little more, you know, special, um, you know, and different from what the other alternatives are. I mean, there, there's, you know, great opportunities to go see, you know, music in a small room standing and sweaty and there's no wine on the list. I love those experiences or being at a big festival or in a theater. Um, so it was really just creating a, a, a stronger, you know, and compelling alternative um, for a setting that was going to, you know, just be a special night out. And again, I think that that crosses a lot of different demographics and is much more about the, someone who's looking to explore culture and combine culinary in a, in a sophisticated way. Did it work from the beginning? Did people get it? Yeah, New York took off right away. Um, and then when we opened Chicago, our second location, four years later, it was even a bigger hit right away. So I think that the concept is very strong. Um, with that said, everything within the concept, um, uh, you know, has has its you know um, learning lessons and challenges, and 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 just because you fill up a room doesn't mean you're making money either, right? So um, <laughs> you, you know. Uh, you know, my dad used to say all the time to me, like, you know, boy, if you only had a nickel for every time your name was in the press um, or were on TV or radio, you'd be really successful and wealthy. <laughs> so, you know, um, so, you know, seeing, you know, just because you get a billion impressions online doesn't mean you're making any money. I mean, making money is a different story. And, and, and so. Um, Are you hinting you know, that you did not make money initially? Um, actually, we were we have always been cash flow positive, um, but you know there's again that's such a you know wonderful thing to say. We're in the black. We're cash flow positive, but is that one dollar or you know <laughs> is that ten million? You know what really is important is like what percentage of gross revenues is truly EBITDA, right? I mean, in fact, I get so obsessed with EBITDA sometimes. My my you know, sort of executive management team likes to call me Ibedorf um, <laughs> because I, I, I like him constantly driving down to, okay, it's great that this location did $10 million, but if it only did a $100,000 of profit, that's 1%, you know, of EBITDA. And that's not really the number. Like, you know, we, so we, we do have a target of, of 10 to 15% EBITDA and, and that should be, you know, what we're we're going for. And so, you know, we looking at the world in that lens, it's like, okay, we could open a smaller location, say in Cincinnati, 
that maybe at the top line only does $4 million, but if it's then bringing 15% to the bottom line, then that's a success, you know? And so, whereas, whereas, you know, doing something that might be brings in $20 million, but it only brings in $10 of profit, you know, is that a success? So I think it's, it's how you define success, what you're looking for for success. You know, there's no question Jeff Bezos was really pretty brilliant and he never made it, it was, you know, not cash flow positive in the beginning or, you know, making EBITDA for 10 years. But, you know, and he had to, he had to really talk down to a, his investors in the market to say, look, at, I, I'm, I'm making an investment because someday, you know, I'm going to be quite profitable. And, you know, well, I think he's definitely proven. Yeah, yeah I think it's working out for him. Right? Yeah. So I just... Again, different things for different people, but it, in how you phrase it. But I, I think a, a focus on the on the bottom line um, is, is 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 it's actually the old reality. And you know, we had periods of irrational exuberance where all people cared about was the top line or growth or other kind of metrics. But look at the bottom line is is just it's basic, um, and and I guess that's what I've been paying a lot of attention to with City Winery. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the interesting thing about, you know, I guess what, what I, I somehow woke up and now I'm running this, you know, great fun business, but, you know, I, I learned a lot with the knitting factory, which was my first club experience. I started out when I was 23. I, it, it grew quickly in New York and then we moved to LA and it had a record company and a lot of moving parts, but it, it was a big part of the dot com. Um, uh, time frame. I, I wanted to ask you about that, but b- yeah, before yeah, you, before yeah. you go into that, let me just uh, remind our listeners: sure. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Michael Dorf, founder of City Winery. If you have a question about what's going on in your own business or about how Michael built his businesses, call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And yes, I definitely wanted to ask you about your experience during the dot com boom. And, and you know, as you suggest in the title uh, of your book, to some extent, the city winery was a, a reaction uh, to that. You you know w- went from digital back to uh, intimacy um, in a in a very in, in an increasingly digital world. Uh, tell us about that. Well, it's it's there's a couple things in there. I mean, you know, I guess. Where I was going, we're talking about the, the transition from from the knitting factory to City Winery was one thing. I just had a chance to really, really look at, you know, how I wanted to spend time on the on this planet and where I wanted to be and what part of the business of music I wanted to be in. And you know, I, I just I saw the live side of of the music industry being the more more interesting one, um, you know, after, after essentially the, the, the takedown of the, of the, of, of, of the music industry because of the, um, you know, because of the internet and, and, and digits, but more importantly, um, I also kind of, I guess, and it, it seems to be playing itself out, realize that more and more people are going to be, um, obsessed with screens that we're going to be living in, in screens, you know, and, 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 and as AI even gets more and more advanced, like, you know, between mobile and our desktop and home television, I mean, we are in front of a screen almost our entire day. And so one of the important outlets, if you will, are anecdotes or opportunities to just be, be more balanced as a, as a human being. It's going to be moments when we can be in the most um, if you will, uh, live, real um, uh, moments of our lives. Is that, you know, at the gym or soul cycle or on a hike in the woods? Um, but in the, you know, and, and what, what other ones are there? And so I, I saw looking at the basic simplicity of, of going to a concert and, and kind of um, um, uh, dining and, you know, that whole um opportunity to to be something that could be a uh, an immersive experience that was going to be a um, potentially unique one 
for people's lives. And if we really focused our business on making that two-hour window that you might be at a concert eating and drinking and, and being with your favorite artists and your friends as, as sensory and as tactile and as non-digital as possible, um, we would be um, offering something that was quite valuable to, to our customers. And um, again, in that sense, um, I think we, we have struck on something that's becoming more and more valuable and more and more unique and more and more important. Um, for for humans right now as we are getting more technical. With all that said, we I am far from a luddite. You know, <laughs> I, we 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 use technology, um, you know, deeply to get the word out about what we do, and we have our own proprietary ticketing, which is you know all about a better connection with our customer. You know, that is. Um, uh, Explain that. What, what's your pri- pr- proprietary approach to ticketing? Well, um, you know, most music venues, sporting, uh, entertainment facilities, even even movie theaters, um, all use between one of five different large systems of, of selling tickets. So Live, Live Nation bought Ticketmaster, and, and Ticketmaster now has bought, you know, Ticket Web and and tickets. I can't keep them all straight. And Ticket Fly and then um, 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 the the uh, um, you know the various sports companies. Each one have their own, and so but they don't do everything that we want ours to do. Um, and so um, uh, you know we we wanted to make sure that we were able to customize um, you know. To, to, to an extent that was really handling our our customers. And, you know, Live Nation doesn't care what kind of wine, um, you know, their, 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 their event, um, you know, goers consume. You know, they don't care about um, um, uh, the, the allowing a customer to, to select their favorite seat. And then that, if they're... A good paying customer or a regular subscriber, like in our case, that then they can get an alert when we go on sale with a particular show, and then they can just say yes or no to a quick text that comes to them. Do you want your favorite seat for Sinead O'Connor? And so, like, there's just components of the customization that the big ticketing companies um, uh, can't haven't done. And, and, you know, we're not trying to be a technology company by any means. In fact, again, almost the opposite. But we see it as a, a tool to offer better service to our, our customers. And in, in that sense, you know, we, we need to offer the best ticketing platform possible. And so, you know, that's, how our, that's I guess, our approach. You know, so that since there wasn't a big company that was able to do it, we kind of had to build it ourselves. Got it. Uh, it- Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I believe uh, I read in your book that you started City Winery right after Lehman Brothers fell. So yeah. not into a, a, a great economic moment. Uh, and you have uh, a bunch of limited partners, I think more than 40 from whom you raised maybe $5 million, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, mm-hmm. was, was, what was that like, at that, especially at that point in time? Was, was it hard to do? Uh, I'm, I'm only chuckling because, you know, I, I, I uh, it's, it really was so absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it was more than just around the Lehman Brothers thing. I mean, the Lehman Brothers obviously was the first of the big banks to fail and was the beginning of, of what felt like financial Armageddon. Um, certainly in New York City, but obviously everywhere felt it. But, you know, in New York, we were right in the middle of, of, of our offering, um, not just to raise money, but our, our, our central product offering um, in creating City Winery back at when it was a business plan pre-opening was, all right, we're going to make wine in this, in this concert environment and we really want to show the barrels and the winemaking equipment and the smells of fermenting grapes and all of that so we wanted that that environment the sale of the wine we were going to make 
I wasn't necessarily clear that, you know, it was going to be the wine we were making that we were going to be selling to our customers. I, it could be any wine. We had a big wine list. I was buying, you know, your, your inexpensive wines as well as expensive, you know, expensive bottles. I wanted the full gamut. But what I thought was going to be the way the wine we were making, we were going to sell it most efficiently, was buy the barrel to bankers, basically, to wealthy um, uh, folks who had a real affinity for wine. What, like the and, ones who, who worked at Lehman Brothers? Well, people who worked at Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and Bear Stearns, so, you know, Citibank and J.P. Morgan, but... You know, many banks that are with us today and many banks that were not. But what doesn't matter, and in, in, as soon as Lehman went down and as soon as the financial crisis began, the, 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 the vibe in fall of 2008 was anti-luxury products, right, that we had been over-consuming, you know, overly leveraging, and, 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 and there was a real blowback against the banking industry, frankly, the financial services world, um, even the ins- some of the insurance companies that were backing, you know, the the the, the debt um, was was getting blowback, and so nobody wanted to have a luxury product. And what we were about to launch was the sale of barrels of wine that people could customize and have their own barrel for sale, uh, for, for for consumption, put their own label on their bottle. You get 250 bottles out of a barrel, and we were making high-end Cabernet and Pinot Noir from California for people to be able to give to their friends. You know, here's here's the bottle of of $50 Pinot I made. You know, at City Winery, it was really cool. I got to work with the winemaker, and 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 here's my name on the label. So that was our product offering on the wine side. When Lehman Brothers went away. And, and nobody wanted a barrel. I had pre-sold 160 barrels um, <laughs> at about $13,000 a barrel, so almost $2 million of pre-sold wow. you know, contra- contracts, which all went away. Nobody wanted to make a barrel of wine after, you know, after the financial crisis. And, and those barrels, you sold those barrels, was that irrespective of events and, and music? It was just you, you were opening a winery in New York City and you were able to, you know, having never made exactly. wine before, you were able to sell $2 million worth of wine in advance? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. Um, now, luckily, it wasn't me. Michael Dorff, a concert promoter who's promising to make wine for you. I had a world-class French winemaker on board um, as our head winemaker. He's still with the company today, David Lecomte, and now he runs, you know, seven working wineries under us, and and each winery has a head winemaker as well. So he's our chief executive winemaker. But um, so you know, he he lent obviously some incredible credibility. But the most there's an old saying in wine, um, uh, you know, wine is made in the vineyard, and so the key for for my selling these barrels was 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 not me certainly it was both the winemaker but also where we were getting the grapes from, and so we were sourcing from super high quality world class vineyards mostly in California and and Oregon, and um, and. And and so I mean, but they were shipping those grapes to Tribeca, to for you to make wine in New York City. And the only way to get, you know, and they thought I was crazy, you know. And I was in California talking to to vineyards, saying I'd like to buy three tons of your Cabernet. You know, uh, I'm gonna have a truck come and pick it up. Um, You know, come once once harvest season comes. They were like, yeah, that that sounds pretty insane. Um. But sure, we'll do it. But and just one little little note: um, you have to pay for it in advance. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, you know, basically, in order to get the business going, I wasn't able to get you know too much, you know, too many you know sellers of of grapes with terms. So I was buying a lot of it, you know, in advance that first year. So I had. You know, really, we had about 13 different vineyards that first year. Now we have about 35 vineyards that we source from. But that first year, we had about 13, just, you know, some of the best vineyards possible that were part of this Make Your Own Barrel program. Um, And then so the wine was sitting, 
you know, now made come October, November of uh, after the harvest, and they were we had 300 barrels of wine in our our our, our cellar on Varick Street. Um, again, about half I thought I had pre-sold barrels. Now, and the other half was wine we were making for ourselves to eventually sell either on site or through a club program. I really hadn't fully figured. I had my projections, but I, you know, we hadn't had any, any, any actual empirical sales yet. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the whole industry was, was really, and the whole market just felt very depressed. Luckily, once we started putting on shows, I was getting traction of people in the room and selling them food and beverage. And we were, you know, we were, we were again, cash flow positive and not doing very well. I still had this tremendous inventory in our cellar and five months after, you know, we made our first wine. So it was really the beginning of spring of 2009. The wine in barrel was just beginning now to show, you know, uh, to, to start to taste, you know, like finished wine. It needs a little time in a barrel. And I'm doing a tasting with David Lecompte, our winemaker. And I'm, and uh, I'm going, you know, this tastes really good, David. Can we please start selling it now? You know, uh, <laughs> we need the cash, desperately. And he's he's like, uh, but to, Michael, the, we have to file the TTB label approval, and the, 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 we've got a bottling line. We haven't bought the bottling equipment, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, um, David, can't we just put a damn cap on this barrel? I mean, God damn it. I mean, you know, we're, we're hungry for money. You know, let's just put a tap on the barrel. And he's like, oh, Michael, you, you stupid American. You can't, you can't just put the gas pressure on a wooden barrel. It'll explode. And I'm like, David. And he's like, well, if you do put it in a stainless steel keg like beer, maybe we could tap it. Um, I've seen some systems like that before. So why don't we consider doing some tap wine like beer? And I said, let's do it tomorrow. Come on, let's go. So we built a very primitive tap system, and we started selling wine by the glass on tap, um, and it started moving. Um, and then we decorated our taps to look like they were coming out of barrel heads, so it felt a little more authentic and real, not just coming out of the bar top like beer, but made it. we just we, we dressed it up, and it then started to really sell. And then we started going, well, wow, maybe this is a component of our business. And so I started marketing the fact that we're selling wine on tap and that, you know, then I, I sort of played, but it was very true, but I just started marketing the truth, which was, we don't, we're not putting this wine into, into bottles and therefore we're, we're saving the carbon footprint of shipping bottles, you know, from Mexico or wherever glasses being produced, you know, or finished wine in, in this format, we're saving a cork and, uh, and actually, there's invite there's there's incredible efficiency by pouring wine by the glass, you know, five ounces, you know, without having it, any of it go bad because it's it's perfectly preserved and pressurized in a stainless steel keg, and and then oh, and we don't have to add sulfites to the wine because we're not transporting it and we're not it's never leaving the cellar, so we're able to keep it at the perfect temperature and therefore not add those preservatives, and all of a sudden these these truthful little factoids became great marketing um, accents. And within a few years, tap wine became 70% of our wine sales. Um, it has a much better margin as an owner um, because we're saving these other components. Um, and people love it because it's actually fresh, great tasting, no sulfite added wine that is actually environmentally conscious. Um, and uh, it turned into a big piece of our business. So, you know, this, this big negative and stressful, you know, moment in our lives became now one of the main sort of business um, attributes of, and characters of our company. That, that's a great story. I, I've got to take a break in a moment, but b- before we go to break, uh, just sum up for us 
where City Winery ha- has gotten since uh, since you started in, in the aftermath of the fall of uh, Lehman Brothers in 2008. Uh, how, how many cities are you in now? We have, we have 12 locations. Uh, we're getting close to $100 million of revenues. Um, we, we processed um, uh, um, 5,000 um, tons of, 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 uh, of, of grapes last year. We sold 700,000 tickets last year. And between all our locations, we did over 250 weddings. Um, uh, uh, I, I wish I could tell you of all the weddings we've done, and that was last year's wedding. So probably we're over a thousand weddings as a company now. Um, I wish I had a the, the metric on how many of those people are still married. I think that would be interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, we at least we, we send them we send them wine, so hopefully they're happy. Um, and uh, actually, so, the yeah, last time I was at your New York City location was for a wedding, and it it, yeah. it really was a fabulous event. Uh, Michael, what is it? What's it been like going to to different cities? Have you had to uh, adapt the model? Uh, you, you mentioned, I think, Cincinnati before. Have there been? Are there big differences in in the locations? Well, we're not in Cincinnati but, yet. I've, I'm, I've been studying it. You know, we're in New York, Chicago, Nashville, Atlanta, Boston, Washington D.C., and and now Philly. As of three weeks, um, in New York, Chicago, and Boston, we have couple locations and we're building and completing something now in uh, Hudson Valley, New York, which is uh, a, a unique setting. Um, I would say the answer to your question is no. I mean, the, the audience um, in Atlanta and Nashville, while obviously different part of the country and slightly different accents and, and you know, maybe slightly different musical taste ever so slightly there's there's an our overlapping you know attempt is to have people indulge their senses i'm not playing off of my book title but like we're again going after well done. that audience audience that wants to really have a, a a great time listening to music and enjoying wine and and i i you know that's an international language I, i'm i'm convinced our model is going to work really well in London and Tokyo and in Barcelona and in, you know, places in, you know, Middle East and Far East. So I, I think it, re, you know, music, wine and food, um, maybe is going to save the world. You know? so, uh, I, but I think these things cross over, you know, really well. Michael, um, I think I read in your book that the, your one location that didn't work was in Napa Valley. Uh, yeah. Kind of intriguingly, what, what happened there? Well, I, I I wish I could say I love the story. I, I don't mind telling it at all because you know it, it's it's just one of those unique things that you just I didn't have the intelligence um, to, to 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 think through, nor did anybody that was advising and looking at it with me. Um, we ended up having this wonderful success of filling our concerts. Actually, we. We did well getting people to come into the room. What we didn't think about was when we were being told, yes, we knew Napa, of course, with Napa, the town of Napa in Napa Valley was, you know, under 100,000 residents, and Napa Valley in total um, was not much more than that. There still were five and a half million wine tourists that were coming there three, four, five days a week indulging their senses they were um you know going on wine tours these were people from all over the country who you know were exactly who our audience is affluent and interested in a sophisticated time and then as we were actually doing okay selling our shows what we didn't think about was showtime is at eight o'clock by six o'clock People have had so much wine from tasting all day, <laughs> these, this wine tours, that they all they want to drink is water and hydrate, you know, after that. And at 8 o'clock, they're already super sleepy or, you know, not, not uh, oh, that's so interesting. consuming more. So we would have phenomenons where, like, an artist like Mark Cohn, one of my favorite, you know, singer-songwriters, um, he'd play all our places. 
and and he does his audience you know will consume let's just say fifty dollars a head on average of food and beverage per person um, in New York or Chicago at the time and very consistent and whether it was Monday night or Friday night he was always in this like fifty dollar number range he came to Napa full house people loved you know the concept of seeing him at City Winery Napa, and we were hitting three dollars and seventy-five cents per head, right? <laughs> you know, um, and that was people who were complaining that we were charging them for the sparkling water they were ordering, right? So, like, it was it was really pulling teeth um, to to have food and beverage sales, and then just to add a cherry on top of our kind of brain fart faux pas was um, we had a strategy with Napa besides thinking it was a great market to, to go into um, because of all these wine tours. But we wanted to, we knew we were going to continue to grow our business and we're not going to be harvesting grapes, you know, in the middle of downtown Philadelphia or Central Park. You know, we needed to have good, solid relationships in Napa Valley, you know, in wine country. Um, where we were sourcing more, most of our fruit. And so we really wanted to you know, be local so that we could you know, invite and encourage the local wine community to, to also come and understand what City Winery really was and become their friends. And, and, and obviously, the, you know, the friendly you are, at least the way I like to approach business, the easier it is to do business. And, and um, so the thing is, is the protocol – being in the wine business is as uh, when a winery person, whether it's the winemaker, the owner, or even the tasting room manager, shows up um, at either a friend's house for a party or a restaurant, or in our case, you know, the city winery, you come with a bottle of wine, you know, from from the winery, and so you know, the wine culture there is, you know bring a bottle of wine. Now, of course, these are the people we want to become best friends with, so we're not going to even charge them a corkage fee. So the irony was all the wine tourists, which was about 90% of the people coming to see shows, they didn't want to drink anything except for some water to hydrate. And the only people interested in drinking wine were the locals who were coming, and they were coming, but they're bringing their own wine with them. So um, <laughs> we, could, we, we really you know, realized after about nine months there was no way we were going to be able to survive in napa and uh it was a painful lesson we put a lot of money into the into the building and and obviously we had our operating losses for about a year and a half but um we we eventually had to leave and uh learned a lot on on uh you know trying to think through there's obviously not that many examples of this where we would make this same mistake again but um just to think through every bit of that sort of customer um, uh, travel and their experience, and, and uh, uh, that was quite a mistake. It's it's so interesting. You know, it seems obvious now that you lay it out there in, in retrospect. Did, do you look back at it and think that you should have figured this out before you went in there, or is it just one of those things? <sighs> you know, look, at I, hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. you know, that, and, and yeah, I... I there's a lot of things that, you know, I, I made even bigger, dumber, more mistakes at, at the knitting factory over the years. Um, I don't regret a single thing I did. You know, um, uh, some of them were naive. Some of them were just dumb. Some of them were just, you know, inexperienced. But the lesson, you know, you can learn from making a big mistake and, and the true internalization of of knowing what you did wrong and it might not even be exactly the same mistake, but even the, the, the category of the air, hopefully you then can eliminate everything within that category moving forward. So I learned so much 15 years of, of doing business under, you know, under the knitting factory banner, then wandering in the desert for three years after, you know, I got out of that before really jumping into city winery you know, it was nerve wracking, but I got to fix so many things for the new business. Um, and so I don't regret a single mistake. Interesting. 
I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Michael Dorf, founder of City Winery. If you've got a question for Michael, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Michael, let me ask you about your your newest location, Philadelphia. I, I've spent a lot of time in Philadelphia. I haven't seen your new location. I, I'm sure it's, it's a great space, but I, I do know... Uh, the building that you've put it in, it's a redeveloped mall that's got a long history, but kind of a, a checkered history. It, it hasn't been a, a successful retail location. Were you concerned about that? No, not at all. I mean, uh, a, a bunch of spaces in our future um, in, in, in this world are going to be in um, unsuccessful retail um, locations. I mean, there's, there's a changing lane, landscape out there. Um, you know, we mentioned Amazon before, but I mean the the world of 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 online shopping is simply changing the way consumers are approaching different products, and so there's going to be some retail available for a more experiential economy that continues to gain, um, if you will, a physical market share and. And so, um, uh, Michael, that, that's all true. Let me just say, this location was struggling long before Amazon, uh, yeah. for what it's worth. I, I don't want to negate the history there. I mean, the, the, this was a, a, I think a, a failed mall. I don't understand why malls in the '70s and '80s were built with the idea of having no exterior windows and having <laughs> all the consumers focus inward. And you know, I, I and I, I have no. I can't apologize enough for the <laughs> ugliness of '70s and '80s mall creators. Like, not no, your fault. You know, I, they either took too much acid and lost all their sense of aesthetics. I don't know what happened, but um, you know, it it was it was hideous. The good news for us is, you know, we were looking in Central Philly. Um, I actually drew some circles a- around Reading. Um, Terminal Market, and I really love that market. That, that that is a great place. That's one of the coolest. You know, I guess it's the second highest tourist visited spot in in all of Philly. Um, I also wanted to be close to the convention center because we do a lot of private events, and the, the 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 rail and stations surrounding you know this particular location were were extraordinary. Um, uh, so, and, and I know a lot of our customers are coming in from different parts outside of Philly as well. So I wanted to have accessibility be, you know, very, very easy. So being right in central Philly was, was, was critical. Um, we got, you know, really put in a fantastic place. What we were, we're part of this mall redevelopment. Um, but you can't enter city winery from the mall at all. In fact, you know, we're, we, we are a standalone entity on 10th and Filbert. Um, our, that's our entrance. It's a street entrance. Most people are coming to, to the restaurant or coming to the venue, you know, never go through the mall experience whatsoever. You know, they're not shopping at H&M and then coming over and dropping in for, you know, a concert. You know, you are pre-buying your ticket generally well in advance most of our shows end up selling out you know we we do a very good job marketing our our shows online and people are buying tickets or you're coming to you know that wedding or private party you're getting that invite and it goes on your calendar months or weeks before so we're a real destination driven business and our address you know is 10th and filbert and that's how you come into our facility so we get to be standalone but we got to take tremendous advantage of both the financial um, incentives on the renovation of everything in the mall and we're able to drive bodies you know to this to this mall because three four five hundred people are coming to our shows and restaurant or parties on a nightly basis and they're getting familiar you know with this renovated mall so it was very smart of pre and matriot to look at us as a as a real amenity for the overall package. And and we obviously also bring in the type of customer that they want to attract to come in and be spending money at some of these retail, you know, elements. So while it wasn't like we were creating this this ice cream, you know, that was, you know, 
in the middle of the mall where people are coming to just go to this ice cream shop in the, you know, inside the mall, we, you know, we're really outside the mall, but we're part of it. You know, we're part of the, the, what they're trying to create as this new destination. Um, and I think it was, it's a, it's been a win-win for both of us. That's great. So we don't have a ton of time left. Can you fairly quickly tell us why you had to close your new lo- New York location and how you wound up in litigation with Trinity Church? Um, sure. I, it's, it's not a short story, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll try and be as, as <laughs> precise here as possible. I mean, we um, were operating for 11 years on Varick Street in Soho. Um, we had just signed a five-year new lease extension with Trinity Church, our, our, our landlord, um, and we expanded to the second floor of our building um, and put in quite a bit of money based on, one, the knowledge that there was the potential for demolition of the building, um, and there was boilerplate language that was in our lease from day one for 11 years that said, with notice in 12 months, you might get this, we might have to demo the building. So we, you know, we're big people. We knew, we knew that that clause was there, but we were also told, don't worry about it. Um, You're going to have at least three or five years in order to, before we really tear down the building and you'll be able to recoup your investment in, in your expansion. And here's a new five-year lease. Um, both for the new space and an extension on your old space. Um, and so we, you know, relied on that. And as soon as we started spending the money on the, on the renovation, um, word on the street was, you know, they were doing a 99-year lease with Disney for the entire block. And it, in fact, was true that a few months, as soon as we opened our new second floor and, and expanded space, we received our 12-month demo letter from our new landlord, Disney, Ouch. that had just signed a 99-year lease. So Disney did nothing wrong. You know, they, they're building a new headquarters. They picked a great neighborhood, you know, the Hudson Square, lower, you know, downtown. It's a great neighborhood. I've obviously not just liked it a lot myself, but um, I think we helped make it hipper and cooler. Um uh, it's sad and I'm sentimental about the building, you know, that we're leaving and the good deal we had on the building. Um, I'm excited to move into our new digs, which will be in a few months at Pier 57. And, you know, it's taken 11 years of all of the, the new mistakes we've made at City Winery. And we're building truly a great temple for music, very expensive new you know, facility, but it's going to be phenomenal. But the lawsuit is not about being upset or anything. It's just simply Trinity Church was not being a mensch. They weren't honoring what their, what their both oral and email um, documents um, uh, said that allowed us to rely on that the 12-month demo was really boilerplate, that we had three to five years. Don't worry. You've always had time. We've, you know, we've, we've always been good and honest and you know, communicate with you. So don't worry, you've got the time. And then, boom, you know, they 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 left. So that that's just not being a mensch. It's not how people do business. I don't care if you're the church or, you know, the mafia or whoever. Like, you just, you know, there's codes of ethics. It's ironic. It's a church. Um, but unfortunately, that's the fact. And, and so, yeah, we had no choice. I've never litigated against anybody in my entire 32 years of doing business in New York, um, but uh, it was the only way to attempt to recapture the investment we made in, in you know, in reliance on their promise. And so... Where does the lawsuit to... stand? Thank you for asking. So the, um, just ironically, um, while in Yom Kippur services myself, um, uh, our lawyers received notice that we survived the motion to dismiss, um, Oddly enough, there was some oral argument heard on Yom Kippur, um, uh, and uh, (laughs) I'm only emphasizing that because it's just bizarre that, you know, after six months of having, you know, the the summons and and all of our our suit paperwork, um, uh, they reached out to the Jewish law firm and me being 
Jewish and everybody gone um, to have an oral argument the next day on Yom Kippur. Um, but anyways, uh, luckily, someone from the law firm represented us, and we survived the motion to dismiss. And so um, they, uh, you know, this is now going to go to to court. Um, so that's good news for us. The more the, the more likely scenario at this point is now that the judge has thrown out their motion to dismiss and has said this is this is legitimate. They relied on your promise, and that's that's bad, church. Um, they're probably going to come to the table. I, we're hoping and make at least a fair. You know, most reasonable people will go. All right, instead of spending. You know, a million dollars on legal fees. Let's let's. You can at least get some of the money back to be whole. And do you agree to that as a settlement? And I'm not saying I agree to that number, but like that's what reasonable people would do. So we we're sure. hoping that they're going to um, come to us and we can settle. In uh, in about thirty seconds, can you tell me has this changed the way you approach business? Do you look at contracts and handshakes differently? No, no, I I. I I I still think a handshake is incredibly important, um, and I wish, you know, you could look someone in the eyes and just believe it. But I've always looked at having something in writing, um, even if it is your best friend and and someone you look in the eye and have a handshake. You know, I, I, if someone says something to you in a meeting, it's just good to follow it up with an email or something in writing that says, hey. You mentioned to me you're sending me your new book for free tomorrow. Uh, thank you very much for making that. And so I, I put a lot in writing um, just to have it as a record. Hopefully you never need to rely on it, um, but it's good to have it. Uh, and when does the new location open in New York? February of 2020. Great. Michael Dorf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a real pleasure. If you want to know more about Michael, his new book is Indulge Your Senses, Scaling Intimacy in a Digital World. And there's a a decent chance there's a city winery not far from you. You can check at citywinery.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 